Um, how do pirates know that they're pirates? Well, they, they just are. I yeah, think. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and of course, their favourite their favorite letters in the alphabet, a pirate's favourite letter in the alphabet yes. is... R. And C. C. <laughs> Welcome to episode 36 of the Ops and Guiney Quick Care Podcast. Uh, g'day everyone, uh, this week I have Graham back with me uh, who's kindly agreed to sneak in and do a, um, a quick podcast um, together. So um, welcome back Graham, you've just recently been to the WAG conference in Bali. Uh, it was excellent, Roger. I don't know if anyone uh, of the listeners have been to the WAG conference. WAG stands for Western Australian Airway Group. The conference is held in Bali. The beauty of Bali, it's incredibly relaxing, and I believe it um, contributes to, uh, what's the word, learning and the education process being relaxed. Um, but not quite as relaxing this time because uh, just before you went, there was a whole heap of um, earthquakes um, across the Straits in Lombok, and... Um so tell me, I understand you experienced your own first experience uh, of an earthquake firsthand. I think we were about 60 kilometres away from a 6.9 uh, magnitude quake. I have experienced earthquakes in um, country Western Australia in the past. There's a little town called Kadoo got destroyed in 1979. That was more dramatic. Uh, I remember the house shaking back in our little, uh, little country town back then. Um, compared to the kind of crunch-crunch um, reverberation in, in Bali recently. Interesting. So I remember gr- growing up in the Shaky Islands uh, myself, um, I remember lots of small tremors as a child, and um, but the biggest uh, earthquake I ever experienced was actually when uh, myself and a couple of mates of mine in med school were travelling around the Middle East, and, uh, and I think it was at the end of third year as, uh, in medical school, and we were in the Sinai Peninsula, and I actually Googled the... Um, there's a web page on the, on the uh, earthquake. It was a, quite a big one. I think there were six people died uh, in that area that, that day. And it was about um, 6 a.m. in the morning. And we were staying in some backpackers in Daha, which is like where you can go diving by the Blue Hole. You know, so, yeah, and, uh, and buy cannabis, isn't it? It's also uh, or eat that. lots of pancakes. Yeah, we didn't buy any of that stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, the highlight of the well, – well, the entertaining part of this was my, my, my colleague, who is now a bariatric surgeon in uh, Christchurch, was um, doing number twos on the toilet. He said at the time, and he said he thought he, he thought his obituary was going to say, you know, <laughs> was was going to say something about um, passed away on the toilet. And uh, the other guy I was travelling with at the time, he um, he enjoyed the whole event because um, uh, there were a couple of Swedish girls staying in the chalet next to us, and they ran outside into the into the uh, lobby area, uh, just dressed in their sort of you know, pajamas. So he thought that was great. Sounds a little bit like Elvis, your uh, friend on the toilet. <laughs> That's right. Oh, he did pass away on the toilet. Yeah, actually, we should do a podcast on um, interesting places that famous people have died. Um, I'm not sure it's got any relevance to this podcast, though. Right, so uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about um, before we get going on the topic is uh, a bit of listener mail, which is uh, good. Um, thanks, guys, for sending a few things in. Um, so we had an email from Sneha, who's uh, requested that we do a, a podcast on non-epidural analgesia options. Um and and also you know, sort of tips to get your uh, an epidural uh, in in someone who's difficult. Um, so I'm trying to uh, corner a few people. We'll try and do one of those. 
Um, I think there's a GP from Albany who also asked for about the same thing. I couldn't, sorry, I'm sorry, I can't uh, mention your name. I've looked for the email and I've lost it, but I do remember your email a few months ago. Uh, David Hoppy has asked if we can do one on um, anesthesia and analgesia in relation to breastfeeding. So, um, yeah, that is quite a, a good one as well, a good suggestion, and we'll see if I can find someone. And, and finally, I did have um, a couple of emails about people saying they love the podcast, but the audio could be better. And uh, I apologise greatly, so I am working on that. So one of my colleagues who uh, works here at the moment, sh um, her partner is an um, audio-visual expert, and uh, I've got him lined up to uh, try and improve my audio-visual um, setup. Okay, so I thought, uh, so this, this discussion today, uh, Graham's going to be on um, something called Sci-Hub, but I thought we'd start off with a pirate joke, because uh, this is a, bit, a little bit about piracy. Um, so, I've lost my piece of paper. So, um, um, how do pirates know that they're pirates? Well, they, they just are. I yeah, think. that's right. <laughs> and of course, their favourite their favourite letters in the alphabet, a pirate's favourite letter in the alphabet yes. is R and C. C. <laughs> favourite letters, yeah. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay. All right, so Graham, have you heard of Sci-Hub? I know. I haven't. Okay. So, um, yeah, I thought this would be really interesting. So anyone who works in the health field or in medicine who ever wanted to look up something uh, related to a medical topic has probably, um, you know, used PubMed or Googled... Uh, um, tried to find a journal article or a relevant journal article in the past. So I think everyone who listens has probably um, been, um, been in that situation. Now, have you ever tried to, um, you know, come across, say, an interesting case and you wanted to look up something relevant and maybe you had to write a, a talk or a tutorial or you just had a patient with some uh, unusual condition that you thought you should learn a little bit more about? And uh, you find an article uh, either through Google, Google or PubMed and then, of course, uh, up on the screen comes... Um, uh, yeah, you can read the abstract and then it says if you want to read the rest of the article um, please um, pay 35 US dollars or, uh, or log in via your institution or university's um, um, portal. I have done that Roger and I have paid the money and I've been usually disappointed by uh, the uh, reward for the expense. Right. So as much as the information hasn't added much more to what I already know uh, but maybe it's the choice of articles that I've paid for. That's interesting. So I've never actually personally, I've always balked at paying that um, fee and always tried to find some way around it. So so what are your options if you do have um, an article that you want to access? I guess if you're lucky and you work in a public hospital uh, or you're affiliated with a university, then usually you can um, either get it, um, they usually have a subscription to that um, uh journal publisher maybe yep. or they um, have into library or they have into library loan mm. yeah so i've certainly done that i've used our college um sometimes it takes up to a, you know, five to seven days to get that article i remember i was writing an article uh for publication and you know you've always got to reference everything and trying to get some obscure articles was really difficult for me um and so that's good if you and so, so that's okay if you live in the developed world isn't it so what if you're um unlucky enough to be a researcher or a scientist who lives in so, sort of less financially w uh, well off parts of the world mm. i've um spent some time in uh medical libraries in uh third world nations and usually the uh organisation within those libraries reflects the uh amount of money available such that um you can't find anything and yep. everything's about 40 years old yeah, that's right. In those uh, poor government hospitals in the developing world. Yeah, so I think um, you know that's um, that's not a great uh, it's not great for them because they have trouble. You know, if they're trying to do research in um, 
uh, or or even just uh, just working in the health field and just want to be up to date with, with the latest um, uh, best treatment uh, for their patients, then not having access to this uh, stuff is uh, is probably not optimal. And um, and I guess uh, so. And so uh, SciHub, uh, we'll get into a bit more detail about what it is in a minute. But sort of the, the ethics behind it. Yeah, some people might say, um, is it ethical? So SciHub is basically a repository of illegal copies of all these um, uh, journal articles. Pretty much almost every biomedical journal article published in the world. Uh, I think there's over 70 million of them uh, are um, currently held in SciHub. Did I and, hear you um, say illegal? Yeah, well, yep. uh, according to the to the for-profit publishers, yep. they believe um, that, that this is a, an illegal repository and they're certainly ch- sort of chasing the... Um, uh, SciHub and I think there may be some other um, repositories as well sort of chasing them in, in a legal sense to try and keep them uh, get them shut down so I guess and the people who um, who, who are behind SciHub so with this in particular this one was set up by a Kazakhstani graduate student Alexandra Elbak- Elbakian apologies Alexandra if I pronounced your name wrong in 2011 um, basically because of what we just described. So she was trying to do some research and and um, she was finding that it was 30 bucks per, per paper and she needed multiple papers and you know, she, she was having a lot of trouble. So uh, it basically she set up a file sharing system and it just expanded over time and became this large repository. And she has um, you know been based um, based this um, repository in, in um, locations where it's difficult um, so people to access uh, for for the publishers to access it. So I think she's based in Kazakhstan at the moment. Um, <clears throat> now, surprisingly, there's a there's a, a great deal of support for this sort of open access um, ethics behind uh, research and publication, and we, and we might just go into that before we go any further. So I ask you, Graham. So in general, most of the article biomedical articles that are published in the world, you know, who pays for them for the research to be done? Well, I think. Um Universities, um, research funding organisations, for example, in Australia, the National Health and Medical Research Council, uh, charitable organisations. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how much the uh, medical literature yep, or so academic journal um, industry contributes. So I think sometimes you have to pay for so publication yeah, as well. Yeah, so my understanding, and this could be wrong, um, but... But I'm pretty sure what's right is that there's almost um, zero funding of ac- of the actual conduct of the research by these publishers. Um, most of the research and science that is done uh, is actually funded by um, governments through NHMRC in America, uh, NIH, and uh, in the UK as well. I uh, can't remember what their one's called, and um, or universities or even charities. And so then, of course, uh, you know, so. So those bodies are actually quite um, opposed, uh, in general, ethically anyway, to the um, pay for the perp, um, for-profit sort of publishing model, mm. and they are um, strongly supporting open access. Um, so whether that is through illegal repositories like SciHub, or whether it's actually the journals changing their model, um, which we can t- we'll talk about some of the things that they've come up with uh, in a minute. So so that's the, the ethics behind it. Um, so, so most academics and most um, government bodies and researchers and universities are all sort of, you know, uh, have a bit of a um, an angle that they that they're not really that keen on the in the pay for profit model. Um, so, uh, 
So that's the reason why it might be a good thing. What about the publishers? How, what sort of arguments do you think they, uh, claims they have to uh, their model? Hmm, well, there's a cost to, uh, to publication. Yep. There's a cost to the uh, editorial process. Uh, there's a cost to distribution of information. Yep. Um, I, I, so, I, I, yep. That's probably all I know. Yeah, so I think you're right. So they argue that um, they um, improve the quality of um, publications, sort of filter what's mm. what's good, what's bad, make it ensure that what um, is uh, what research is important is um, disseminated and make sure that it's written up appropriately and, and all those sorts of things. So quality control is one thing and also dissemination, you know. So most people read the sort of well-known journals and most of those are owned by the for-profit uh, organisations now. So they would say that's their role, and uh, you know, and obviously they have um, costs involved in um, publishing and that sort of thing. So they have to recoup those costs, and that's why it costs money. Um, so, so you can see there is arguments on both sides of the coin, um, and so there is a, a move towards um, s some sort of in between uh, compromises. You know, some of the open access uh, models that are out there, um, some of the journals uh, have. Um, Open access articles. I don't know if you've noticed this now. So when you when you find an article, a lot of them are actually open access. Um, so they talk about the gold uh, model. This is uh, what I was reading on El Silvia. Uh, so that they say you can have a gold open access article, and that basically means it's open. As soon as it's published, anyone in the world can download it for free and disseminate it and do what they want. But that means the researcher or the the author of the article has to pay three thousand dollars to El Silvia uh, as a sort of open access. Uh, upfront fee and then there's another model which I'm not sure if that costs anything it's called the green model which means that um, the the authors can't publicly share it but they can post it on their institution's repository okay um, and the other thing that the, the other bit changes that have, have been occurring is that um, in the over the last 10 20 years is that some of these big research organizations like the NIH in America which funds a huge amount of research Part of their grant has been that the all, that the researchers must um, deposit the article or publish the article in what's something called PubMed Central, which is a free repository, open access repository. So basically, they're saying we'll only grant give you some money for, to do your research if the results are published in an open access forum, so that everyone in the world can read it. Yep. So that is good. That, that's a, a good thing, isn't it? I thought I'd delve a little bit into. We're, we're almost finished, but we'll just delve a little bit into the. Um, academic publishing world and who who's doing what um, it's quite interesting so you know uh, I mean uh, our medical journals have been around since um, 1665 I think so and um, I don't think things I don't know what your feeling is uh, Graham I don't think the current model that we have at the moment is going to change very soon I think people you know people who do research still want to get published in a prestigious journal and um, the prestigious journals like The Lancet and in our field, BJA and things like that. Uh, so yeah, I, I think can't we're, in the, middle, we're yeah. in the middle of a change uh, uh, of the way things are done, but um, it'd be interesting to see how things pan out. I think it's probably a, a difficult time for research. I suspect there's less money available to fund research activity, yet there's greater pressure on... Um, academic staff to publish and and that probably accounts for a lot of the it's not chaff but there's a lot of um, information uh, rearranged and presented in 
in different forms with just the same information. Original material um, is becoming less of a proportion of what is published. Yeah, that's right. Um, now, there was a couple of other things I was going to mention, so I'm not going to go into great detail about Sci-Hub. If people are interested, you can read the Wikipedia page on it. It is pretty interesting. Um, I did read somewhere that, um, surprisingly, you, know, you might think oh, it's mainly used by people in less financially well-off parts of the world, but that's not true. So actually most of the um, downloads through Sci-Hub occur through um, countries like the US, uh, Europe and other places. Um, and some of it they, they, they theorise is just um, convenience. So certainly getting an article through into library loan could, you know, or, or um, asking a, univers a university or some librarian to source it for you takes time. Mm -hmm. If you log on to Sci-Hub, you can, and I, I, I'm not going to say that I've done it, but I have, I do know someone who has done it. <laughs> um, it, it can take um, probably about 20 or 30 seconds. Um, I'm, very, so, I'm very tempted so already <laughs> to use Sci-Hub. Uh, so I'm not encouraging anyone do, to perform any illegal activities on this uh, podcast, um, but uh, from what I've heard, that is um, how easy it is to, to access pretty much any article you want, as long as you have the actual name of the article or the DOI, which is the um, sort of digital number that you see on the um, uh, on the reference whenever you find an article on PubMed. So there you go. That's um, that's interesting, and, um, and there's a little bit about how um, the publishing industry has been chasing um, Alexandra, the the woman who's behind SciHub uh, at the moment. Uh, and how the the website is uh, in, in certain um, uh, certain um, var variations of the website have, have come and gone over time as it moves around. Um, I think probably though it's um, it's it's here to stay, or, or some sort of version of this is going to end up here to, being here to stay because it's going to be very hard for um, anyone to stop it. And so therefore, the publishing industry is going to have to adapt in some way to to this new reality. The dark web. That's right. Mm. Okay, so we finish with a quiz. Um, some of the quizzes that I've had on this podcast have um, fizzled, <laughs> so I'm hoping this one won't. Uh, once again, as everyone knows, if I just publish a, a question, some of the, then it's pretty easy to just type that into Google and find the answer. So this, once again, it's going to be an image. It's a picture of someone who's famous in the obstetric and gynecological world for something. Uh, and so this is a bit obscure. I'm pretty sure it's probably going to be too obscure again, just like that. Um, stupid serial killer uh, mm. quiz I had where no one answered anything. Um, but if anyone's got any good guesses, please, um, I'll, I'll put it on the web space. If anyone's got any guesses as to who this character could be, he's obviously not born in the uh, 1990s because he's wearing a bit of old... Uh, he looks like uh, a dandy. <laughs> he's, he's wearing a, a, some, <laughs> some pretty fashionable garb from the day that he was around, I'm sure, but in, uh, his, uh, his hair is quaff quaffed in a very uh, elegant way with lots of curls. I'm very jealous. Mm. Uh, He's clearly a uh, learned man. He's got yeah. uh, um, volumes of, uh, of books in the background. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, no, that's definitely what you... So you, you don't see that very often anymore, do you? You know, the old academics, they stand in front of their computer probably. But. Yes. All right, and if anyone has any suggestions for some good quiz uh, topics, that uh, yeah, let us know as well. All right, we'll leave it there. Graham's got to go and help someone uh, in theatre, I think. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for Roger. talking, Graham. No worries. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
if you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, www.obsandgynecritcare.org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.